Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what's on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's remake of a 50s alien invasion horror picture, Village of the Damned. Plus, I've got the perfect beer to pair with it, and we've both got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. Long time no speak. I know. What happened? Well, I want to do a little house cleaning up at the top before we get to our review. So Midnight Warriors, fans of the Carpenter Shop, apologies for the delayed release of, of episodes lately, the sporadic release of episodes. Uh, it's been a crazy summer, but we're going to try to keep up with uh, you know our standard uh, bi-weekly format uh, we may be more fortnightly-ish with the War Starts Midnight releases, but then we're also still going to try to keep the Carpenter Shop episodes coming monthly. So uh, hit me up on hit me up on Twitter, and I will, uh, you know, I'll let you know what's going on. Yeah, just just call us out on on social media. Uh, put that pressure on us. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, we it's been a while, Jake, since we've uh, we've talked since we've reviewed anything. So let's just let's just get to it. All right, sounds like a plan. At precisely 10 a.m., in a quiet seaside village, something happened. Something unexplainable. Something unbelievable. There's a lot of pregnancies, much more than would normally be expected. All the pregnancies seem to date from the day of the blackout. This town is about to discover that looks can kill. There have been a few casualties. I should say accidents that might be related to contact with the children. My daughter was involved. Who are they? (gasps) They have one mind that they share between them. Father? Let us pray. You've been discussing us with Dr. Vern. What did she tell you? You're hiding something. All right, Jake. So Village of the Damned is John Carpenter's remake of the 1960 British horror film of the same name. The film takes place in the small town of Midwich, which starts uh, having some strange occurrences after everyone in town passes out all at once one day. And then suddenly... A large number of women in town miraculously become pregnant and all give birth at the same time to some really creepy uh, albino children. So from there, it's, I don't know, more or less your standard kind of old school horror film in a lot of ways. Um, So, Jake, coming off of, you know, our last episode where we discussed Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which was infamously a John Carpenter picture that was not John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. We're now here with John Carpenter's name above the title once again, John Carpenter's Village of the Damned. But I'm curious, do you think this is truly John Carpenter's Village of the Damned, or uh, are we getting getting something else in the mix? That's a tough question, because like, since it is a remake— 
Um, I, I guess they picked picked him for this one because he remade the thing and it was awesome. And uh, I don't know. I just didn't have the same feeling that like his heart was in this one. Yeah, so just a little bit of backstory, and I didn't have a lot of time to do all the research that I, I normally like to do with these types of episodes, but Sandy King, his wife and producer on this, and John Carpenter, they actually wanted to make uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. So they had this Alphaville deal with Universal, and they said, hey, we'd like to make Creature, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Universal says, actually, we really want to remake Village of the Damned. I think there was already a script that had been written up at this point. So it kind of comes to them, you know, and John Carpenter's a huge fan of horror films from, you know, the 50s and 60s, the time of, of when he's growing up. So it makes sense for him to approach the story. But I don't know. I'm I'm sort of torn with with this movie, to be quite frank. I think this is an imperfect film, but it has a weird kind of old school charm to it as well. It does feel like that old school 50s horror film, um, maybe to a fault sometimes. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I'll start I'll start there. What about you? I enjoyed it with a question mark. Look, I don't want to come out and be the one to take a strong position at the top of this review, but I just want to point out that I'm never going to forgive John Carpenter for reviving an old franchise and then immediately killing Mark Hamill's character off. <laughs> Why would you do that? It just it's not how I would have had it. Hashtag not my village of the damned. Have, have you how's that crowdfunding campaign going to to make your own version of village of the damned? Um, I'm at zero dollars, but that was also my goal. Good. Excellent. So it's going well. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but, but no, really, it felt a lot like a Twilight Zone episode. And I don't know, and I love the Twilight Zone. I don't know if that's to say it was like a concept horror film or that those 60s um, vibes were showing through and the, the logic of like watching a Twilight Zone episode play out of like, this is logically how things must go um, is there. But it, it didn't feel possibly as cinematic or with the same scale as some of the other Carpenter horror films to me. I mean, I I don't think you're wrong there, and I I think it is working in that. That's I think that's what feels old school to me, though. Is it? It feels very simple. It is very simple. Um, and even if you compare it to something like The Fog, which has sort of similar vibes up front, as far as like something eerie going on in this small town that affects everyone, and mm -hmm. no one knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. The feel of The Fog is much more modern, even if it mm -hmm. is like this old horror story sort of uh yeah. construction whereas this doesn't feel nearly as modern this doesn't feel it feels like like something familiar and comfortable um yeah I, maybe I, I, and maybe to a fault but i kind of like seeing him dabble in in this i don't think i, I think there's a whole lot that doesn't work or a whole lot that um like you're saying with sort of comparing it to Twilight Zone, it definitely has a lot of these things that you just have to sort of accept this is the way the world works or this is the way, I mean, especially with the kids, like with just no one mentions that, hey, all of our kids dress up really weird in the same, like, why are all these parents buying their children great clothing? Those are questions that you just can't ask because this movie is not concerned with addressing that. 
no, this movie doesn't live in the realm of like logic or it's not a modern take on Village of the Damned. It is like, I don't know, even at the beginning, like everybody in town passes out. Ten women end up pregnant and the police's response is really non-existent. Like they don't come up with a theory for how ten women got pregnant when they were all knocked out. I mean, devil's advocate, the FBI is involved and uh, they know something's up. And so it's beyond the hands of the police. I I mean, I guess so. And then, like, these kids keep killing their parents. And there's a bunch of really suspicious suicides. But, like, the whole town is under, like, an FBI martial law sort of situation. The cops are doing very little. It's it's not a it's not a logic realm. It is it is a thought experiment. And and if you if you look too far past the edge of the stage, it just doesn't hold up. It's I don't know if to call it a morality play because it's not really that, but it 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 is like well within the confines of uh let let's follow this premise to where it leads. Yeah, sure. And that's and that's the thing is like it is it is so thin that you have to jump on board or else you're probably going to have a bad time with it. Um, I, in general, like, I mean, there's some, there's some camp to it. There's some things that are, uh, a little cheesy. I, in general, found it pleasurable. I actually, I think it's more rewatchable than Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Mm -hmm. And not to say that, I mean, there's definitely some achievement in Memoirs of an Invisible Man that, um, is beyond this technical achievement, but I find it oddly comforting in a way. Like it's, it's not surprising, which is, Something that you, I totally understand the criticism of that as well, but um, there's just something nice about getting something that feels about about right, about what you're where you're going to get, but not in a way that's necessarily predictable. It's just uh, it falls into it falls into the genre very well. Yeah, I, and and what I want to do is like try to place this within Carpenter's career. So like the first thing you talk about memoirs of an invisible man. Um, we we did get like memoirs of an invisible side of a briefcase to right towards the end like those those special effect things he were he was playing with mm-hmm. like really playing with in memoirs of an invisible man we see him using a little bit of that there he um, didn't he didn't and, have memoirs of an invisible man money on this though no he didn't so like i said memoirs of an invisible side of a briefcase yeah and i mean i think to your point comparing it to carpenter's other films it is it is smaller it is less of an achievement it is like it's not it's not his peak i'm not even going to yeah. like try to pretend like it is so to go from memoirs of an invisible man which seems like maybe a downward trajectory definitely definitely the biggest like flop i think of of his career to this point um and not meaning i don't mean box office but i mean like potential versus what we got out of it and that's probably because he's working with big studio mm-hmm. and and all of that and then you get something like in the mouth of madness which is just like i mean i just got whiplash the first time i saw it because it's just so good so then coming from that to this yeah it is it is a step down for sure and and I have like a, a grand theory of artists in general, which is when you make a really, really great work and it's not critically or financially appreciated and you have like, you know, you made a great film and then no one appreciate it and you get no positive feedback and no positive press and no positive reinforcement. It can derail you for a while. Yeah. Um, and like the only example I have of it not derailing somebody is when. Uh, Pete Townsend wrote, uh, I can see for miles and miles, and it wasn't a hit. And he said, well, I give up. I'm not doing radio hits anymore. I'm just going to write my own 
you know, music. Yeah, but other yeah. than that, like it can derail a band, it can derail a director. That's a really um, like traumatic event. And I think In the Mouth of Madness is great. I think John Carpenter knows it was great. And I yeah. think this is just sort of a reaction where maybe he's like, why do I even bother caring so much? Let me just go in and put a good day's work in at the office and I'll do a good job, but I don't need to try to break the mold or do anything crazy. I mean, I don't know. That that sort of goes against what he's said so many times in interviews about, especially when he compares to, you know, the way Hawks worked. And, mm-hmm. you know, because Hawks, Hawks also made films that were not stellar, but he tried to make the film in a way that only Howard Hawks could. I mean, basically saying like, whether it's good or bad, I own it. And so I have to put my mark on it and it, and it you know, even if it's a bad premise, mm-hmm. I will do everything I can to make it good. Um, so, so to hold up to that scrutiny, I don't know how much of John Carpenter's fingerprints we necessarily get in this. Um, it definitely doesn't jump out like some of those 80s films, like In the Mouth of Madness, um, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've already covered. Um, there are, there are little flourishes like the, uh, the guy who passed out on the grill. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that made me feel like I was watching a Carpenter film and, uh, uh, some of the, so the, um, guy, the, the janitor who jumps off the roof with the broom, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, that felt pretty Carpenter to me. Yeah, that did. There's a there's a shot. I mean, it's a real simple thing, but there's a shot really early on where it's a super wide lens. I mean, it's probably like, I, I mean, it's probably like a 14 mil um, and pushing into like some hedges uh, in yeah, front like of like in house. the front yard when Christopher Reeve is walking. I, I think it's maybe just before he wakes up or just before. So, you know, it's it's one of the it's this establishing shot, but it's just like, yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous. And it's wide and so it feels kind of eerie and it feels you know honestly it feels a little like halloween that floating yeah lighting I, camera i actually know what you're talking about because there's a few shots i felt like belonged in either halloween or christine or something along those lines mm-hmm. where it is that and and you even get that in prince of darkness where it kind of starts out just just getting those the the sense of the space of that town yeah um yeah. which i mean you, he does i already mentioned the fog but he does that all over the fog as well and, and i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned the fog because i kept thinking of the fog during this um, the community, a whole you know city under attack by the supernatural, but also you could think of the thing, or maybe even assault on precinct thirteen. Like Carpenter really likes these isolated communities under siege in a way. Here's actually a question that I have for you. Um, I back on our assault on precinct thirteen episode, which I don't know about you, but I've gotten a little bit of flack for sort of where we landed on that. Um, I I understand. Did, did you feel like you're under siege? A little bit. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I understand where the general public is coming from in that they seem to like Assault on Precinct 13 a little more than we did. But at the same time, it's, it's a little like, you know, he's getting his bearings. But when we, when we reviewed that episode, I mentioned that I actually uh, watched it once through with the color desaturated to black and white. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. it immediately drew me in closer. Yeah, I found numerous times throughout this thinking like if this was in black and white, it would just feel more right. You know, I'm I'm actually with you on that. Um I I don't know why, but sometimes watching a movie in black and white can make um it feel 
I don't want to say more immersive, but like I'm more willing to bend the rules of reality because I'm watching a black and white film. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is how this world works. Well, Uh, even even like for me, there can be times when like black and white will make dialogue that feels really stiff feel okay because it's like mm -hmm. oh we're we're in this yeah this world yeah it's it's it is very much like a separation uh from when you see things in color and it it feels really real and vivid and uh, i guess verite in a way i don't i don't i don't know uh but um but yeah i i could i could see the black and white thing i definitely could and it and it would and it would suit this really well this also has that carpenter uh western feel to it in a way um with kind of like the gang running the town mm-hmm. um even though it's kids and even yeah. though it's supernatural and even though it's a horror it's still kind of that these are the bad guys they when they roll through town you better watch out cuz if they don't like you yeah you know, they're they're going to they're going to have a standoff with you and you're going down you're going to light yourself on fire i hadn't thought about it that way but you're actually that's that's pretty true um what did you think of the kids um <laughs> They're very off-putting. I, I, I thought they did their job really well, and, and they did feel like an intimidating presence when they were on screen. But just sometimes when they were just walking along, I was like, how is the town okay with this? Be- because you weren't buying into, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I yeah. mean the kids as, as characters, as performance. Like, I, I thought they did fairly well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, they did. They did a good job picking picking the kids. the The main like angry girl that he has a standoff with at the end, I thought did a particularly good job. Yeah, and I thought Robert did a really good job too. The the kid with a, a conscience, I guess, is the yeah. best way to describe him. The the one who lost his his mate, his pair. Yeah. So let's talk about this story for a second. Um, did you think that that tenth kid was out there? Oh, like I like that Kirstie Alley maybe just like abducted the child for experiments. Yes. Um, I did the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I watched this in waves because every time I sat down to watch it, my child woke up, and so I had to stop it. Is it um, is it because his mate was missing? It perhaps I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I hope not. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> but by you know by the second or third time, I was thinking probably not because just because you don't hear anything, you don't hear wailing, and you hear yeah. the other children wailing. So I assumed that it probably was a stillborn. But it's still it still is shady with her running off the way she does. Right, and and didn't show anybody. Like I I, th- I think um, I was expecting that to come back up. But, um, just, I mean, it kind of does, but in the most like, just, yeah. Oh, look, it's an alien. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the most fifties way possible. The the first shot of it, I was like, I'm glad they didn't show this for very long. Cause that was just long enough to be effective. And then when they come back down to that basement, they just like have a 14 minute shot of a, <laughs> yeah. of a bad alien prop. It's like in Fahrenheit 451 when, uh, they show the guys riding the, the flying, segways i don't know if you know what i'm talking about but it's like this effect that they clearly couldn't pull off and -hmm. it's not just like it's one of those things where it's like we should attempt it oh this doesn't work okay let's just cut around it no 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 they just go like full steam ahead locked (laughs) off shot really bad grat like i'll try to i'll try to find it find a clip and put it in the show notes it's just like laughably like i don't know who watched like the the first cut of the film was like yeah, no, we should definitely keep that in. And is is that 
Is that as long as, do we have any more? Could we make it longer? This Jaws movie was good, but can you give me more shark? Yeah, it's it's that sort of, it, it is a little bit that, that sort of thing. But at the same time, maybe in black and white, it'll feel great. So what did, what did you think of all the different, so uh, I, I think of this film as having a lot of big, I don't want to say scares, but big dramatic moments when the, the kids force people to harm themselves. Um, did you have a particular one that you thought worked really well or didn't work or anything like that? Uh, I thought the, so I guess it's the second time that Christopher Reeve's wife, uh, is attacked Mm -hmm. or when, like when she goes off the cliff, I thought the, I thought the execution of that was really good. That felt like John Carpenter horror execution, like to a T, um, just in the way that he shows you just enough information that you get it, but he doesn't explicitly tell you what's happened. It's all in the, you know, you just get an eerie feeling. That was great. That was wonderful. I I thought that was really good. And I actually thought the uh, hand in the soup or stew or whatever she was cooking was pretty effective too. I think he chose to shoot it from like outside of the door frame. Um, Mm. And so it was a little bit obscured, but not like it, it wasn't close up of her putting her hand into it. It was played kind of in a longer shot. And I thought yeah. that was handled really well as as well. I, th- I thought they went downhill a little bit after those two. I thought those were the best. Uh, Mark Hamill didn't really work for me. No. Uh, partially because is he trying to snipe these kids with a 22? <laughs> yes. Did you see the barrel on that thing? Um, I couldn't like I I couldn't get over that the entire time. And then so once he like once he turns the gun on himself and kills himself. I'm still like, but what about, what about that? That That's a tiny bullet. What was, what was his plan? <laughs> also, I like that the, the priest is like time to snipe some kids. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I mean, that honestly feels a little John Carpenter as well. Like a little, it's, it's not as sinister as like shooting the girl with the ice cream and assault on precinct 13, but it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if, an average horror director is going to try to pull that off. I don't know if an average horror director is going to have the priest commit suicide at command of the kids. Did it work for you seeing like the ocean and the brick wall and coming through the brick wall and all those, uh, those cutaways that from, from when Christopher Reeve is blocking out the, uh, the, the, the children. It was fine. But by that point in the movie, without anything with that sort of, hyper stylized feel Mm -hmm. uh it did feel totally out of left field so um i I, like i don't think it was fitting for everything that we'd seen up until then i thought the ocean one worked because we had brought that ocean theme in with his wife Mm -hmm. and so i i thought that one was just fine i had no i had no problems with that one at all um the brick one by that point i was just like whatever's happening is happening it's fine (laughs) Um, but, um, it did set the stage for the, the stylized see through the briefcase thing, which I thought, um, after they broke through the wall and went through and saw the briefcase and saw the bomb inside of it, I thought that was more, um, effective. No, that was fine. I mean, for me, I, I kept getting hung up on just the lighting of the wall was so, <laughs> I mean, it was so intentionally cheesy, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we got, we got Gary B. Kibb again, um, who, you know, he did Prince of Darkness. He did, uh, he did in the Mouth of Madness. He did this movie. Um, it's, it's not his worst. Um, I think, I think this movie overall looks better than like They Live. 
Uh, but there are some some weird things going on where it's just like, yeah, come on, Gary. Yeah. Why, that, why, why did you make that choice? Yeah, the lighting on that wall reminds me of like uh, in After Effects, if I just throw up a, a brick wall and throw two like spotlights on it and just play with them for a second. I'm like, oh, that's good. Yeah. What's, it, what's it was, the default red? What's the default blue? Okay, good. Go. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't talked about characters much. What did you think of uh, Christopher Reeve's character whose name I do not remember? And that may say something. Dr. Chaffee? Yes, Dr. Chaffee. How do you think? What did you think of him? Um, well, to start with character, I, I thought he was pretty good. I mean, he's maybe a little milk toast, but he's sort of the leading man that this movie deserves, I guess, or leading character. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoy Christopher Reeve in general. I think I think he's pretty good. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Like as as character, sort of milk toast. Uh, Christopher Reeve as performance, though, he's amazing. He's really good. He's charming. I loved him. He's charming. He's good, and and he gives it. He gives it his all. Like like he 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 even in the cheesier parts where he's you know getting mind attacked by a kid. He he comes to set and and gives it a ten. Like he is going at it. And I think that's what I mean. I I think he's the entry point for if you're going to buy into this. He's a large piece of that. Mm-hmm. Is he's so convincing and so inviting into the world that uh, I was sort of lulled into like okay. He's having fun with it. He understands what it is. I understand what it is. Let's just let's just enjoy it. Uh, but what about the next top build cast member, which was uh, Kirstie Alley? What'd you think? Uh, so I think her character, Dr. Susan Verner, uh, I was really excited when she's first introduced because mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, look, Carpenter putting a Hoxine woman in this movie. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then she isn't given much to do the rest of the film. No, I forgot she I forgot she was there for a really long time. Yeah. And then Dr. Chaffee comes and like talks to her and she takes him down to the basement and all that stuff. But I had forgot like that that plot was going. I was like, oh, the FBI is still involved, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's a really missed opportunity to build out that character and use her for, I mean, cause she, there was so much potential in that character that I think is totally untapped. And even whenever like halfway through when she has that like secret FBI meeting where they're like, you know, it's a clandestine meeting on the set of the Charlie Rose show. And it's just, once again, Gary, really? You like, you couldn't, I get that it's supposed to be secretive, but this is, this is what you gave us. Just black back. Okay, whatever, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's just like, oh, I'm the exposition dump, exposition dump. And that's really, I mean, other than opening scene, which I think she's great in, uh, it's kind of a thankless job from there on out. Yeah, I didn't think she did great. I didn't think she had much to to, to deal with or much to work with either. Um, I didn't think her... <laughs> Uh, self autopsy thing was um, the most effective. Well, and I mean, I think part of that's just like I didn't, I, I wasn't fully invested in that character enough for it to be like totally conflicting. Of like, I mean, it's like squeamish to yeah. to see someone do that, but that was the extent of it. It wasn't. I didn't have that emotional connection to her to make it to take it to the next level. Yeah. On, on the other hand, I thought um, Robert's mom. Uh, the Jill McGowan character, uh, Linda Kozlowski, uh, yeah. did a really good job, and I really enjoyed the character, and would have liked to seen more of that, um, 
like her relationship with Christopher Reeve and with Robert and all that. And and it, it wasn't explored as much as I would, as I wanted to see. Yeah. That really would have been nice actually. Like I, I think the whole, um, what is it that he says? What is empathy? Mm-hmm. Um, that whole thread was another thing that was like, it was nice. And it actually like felt like, okay, we're beginning to go a little deeper than maybe a twilight zoney thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't really, it didn't develop into much more than it. What it did was it went just like half a step further and then said, oh, well, it's still a twilight zone thing where like, we just have to give this kid empathy so that then it creates conflict in the very end. Uh, I uh, think you're underselling twilight zone. Twilight zone took very little and asked big questions with it. And I, I felt like this, the reason it wasn't like, because I, I totally could have come into this and said, it's like twilight zone and I love it. It's that it took all these points and didn't like it never stuck the landing. It never asked the big question and and asked that and made it apply to humanity in general. It it felt a little more limited. It was like, okay, he's got empathy, so he needs to live. But all these other ones still need to die. It like didn't imply something about their whole species and an interspecies relationship or anything like that. I do like how many unanswered questions there are though. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's really nice rather than trying to say like, oh, well, these creatures came from here and they've been like if if Kirstie Alley had said, oh, we've been tracking them for X amount of years and we know all of these things about them. That would have made this movie far worse. I do. I do like that. There's so much left vague, which is once again, another totally John Carpenter sort of thing where it's like, yeah, the the lack of answers is a lot of times the most terrifying thing. Yeah, I like that there were like two other towns that it had happened to and uh uh all all of that. It, it was it was good hints at a much larger world, but I don't know, it just never I don't know. And 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 I'm talking a lot of negative stuff. I I enjoy watching the movie um more I think than I enjoy watching Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Like mm-hmm. I I I liked it. I like older horror movies. I liked the 60s feel to it. Um I just I think that it is like a a little bit of a lower rent version of the fog. Like the fog is so great and he's treading very, very similar territory. And while I enjoy watching this, when you compare it to other Carpenter stuff, it's just, it's, it's not up to the same, to the same standard. You know, Jake, I agree. And I think that's a perfect segue to compare John Carpenter's score to John Carpenter's other scores. So that means that's right. It's time to score the score. And Jake, remind me, how do we score the score? We're going to score the score out of a score, which is 20, as everyone who has ever read the Gettysburg Address should know. That is correct, Jake. And so today we are scoring John Carpenter's score for Village of the Damned out of a score. Uh, and this is this is actually one that he did in collaboration with Dave Davies, who, if that name sounds familiar, it might be because uh, Dave Davies of the Kinks, also uh, his son is in uh, the the band with Cody Carpenter and John Carpenter that uh, has been making all of these these Lost Themes albums, and they're working on the uh, Halloween theme right now. Is, is this his first collaboration, or did he work on uh, In the Mouth of Madness? Didn't what didn't one of the Davies work on that for some reason? I thought did he? I to be perfectly honest, I cannot remember. 
Um, I will say in the In the Mouth of Madness score is much better than this one, much more memorable than this one. Yeah, this one may have gotten a better review if I hadn't waited so long after watching the movie before recording this, because I couldn't hum a bar of it right now. When I was watching it, I felt like it, it did a pretty good job and because I, I was conscious of it. I was like, OK, yeah, yeah, I get this. It's um, mostly it's mostly underscore. I do like there is this little like maybe subversive thing up the beginning that it's like this subdued acoustic guitar playing as like we're going around through the town. And it's, it's obviously this like overly cheery music to give this feeling of like, everything's great, right? You know, it's going to get bad. So let me, let me, you know, it's, it's not even like they're trying to lull you into a false sense of security. It's like trying to make it feel uh, you know, eerie because clearly we all know things are about to go bad. The title card said Village of the Damned. Like, I don't think subtlety is a place at the top of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but beyond that, there's not a whole lot, like, there's not a memorable theme that I can hum, uh, which is something that I, I mean, with a John Carpenter score, there's generally at least one one thing that, you know, if I if I hear it, it'll be an earworm in my in my mind all day, nothing really in this. And then the, I mean, it's, it's a lot of this underscore with sort of these, uh, choral notes and, uh, sort of chimes and lullaby stuff, which, you know, works. I, I see what they're doing here. You know, they're the children of the damned. So kind of this, this lullaby theme going on, but creepy choral children, um, it's hard, like you said, it's hard to remember. Um, so I think I'm going to give this a eight. Yeah. I had it at 11 cause I wouldn't, which is like the equivalent of a, a five and a half. Like I, I, I wouldn't take points away from the movie for it. Um, so I, I didn't want to go below that 10 mark. Um, but also it didn't do much like for me. I don't remember it. It's not memorable. Um, I don't, I, I just, that's what I think it is. It's just right over average. Time to move on, Jake. And it's uh, probably everyone's favorite time. It's Clash of the Carpenter time. That's right. Okay, help me out here. So we began with The Thing, and so naturally, Kurt Russell's R.J. McCready was our victor by default. And then he went on to defeat Victor Wong's Professor Barack in Prince of Darkness. The creepy innkeeper, Miss Pikmin, a.k.a. Happy Gilmore's grandma, from In the Mouth of Madness. Then bomb number 20 in... Dark Star. But then R.J. McCready's reign ended, and we had a lot of turnover. So McCready was defeated by The Shape from Halloween. Who was then defeated by Christine from Christine. Who was allegedly defeated by the whole crew at Precinct 13 from Assault on Precinct 13. I'd I still contest this result. I saw the car cube move. But then they were defeated by Blake and his band of sword-wielding sailor lepers in the fog. But then finally, Kurt Russell returned to the brawl as Snake Plissken and escaped from New York and claimed the throne from Blake and company. He went on to defeat Jeff Bridges' titular Starman in Starman by helping him return to his home planet. But he was soon defeated by Jack Burton in an epic three-way Russell on Russell on Russell tussle with Burton and a mysterious figure who looked an awful lot like R.J. McCready. So then Jack Burton went on to face Nada in the longest-running knockdown dragout brawl of the entire series. But uh, Burden ultimately won, leaving him to face Sam Neill's cold-blooded CIA assassin, David Jenkins. And uh, how did that come out, Jake? Uh, uh, Jack Burton won. 
Jack Burton won. You say that with a little bit of credulity? No, no, no. Like, like, how could you ask me that question? Okay, okay, okay. Um, so, so now we're down to who we're going to pick for uh, Village of the Damned. We've got a few options, but my heart, let me just say where I land and then you can let me know if you want to go someplace different. But my heart's with Christopher Reeve because uh, he gives a stellar performance here and his his character, Dr. Alan Chaffee, is you know, intended to be the leading man of the film. He's really the only man in the village that sort of tries to stand up against these children and uh, defeat them. See, I normally would be there, but I, I think Robert, the, 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 the kid who lost his mate, I think he, I think he might be the, uh, the, the tough guy from this film. You, no. You don't I, think? Like, I mean, if if Jack Burden goes up against Robert, they're just going to end up like teaming up and getting ice cream. He does have a thing for people with green eyes. <laughs> he does have a thing with for people with green eyes. That's that's true. Okay, so let, let's just go with Doctor Alan Chaffee. Jake, there's there's no two ways about it. I don't I don't think there's any way that uh, Burden's not going to win this. And I'm going to be really sad to see Chris Reeve go because, uh, man, did I mention how much I liked him in this movie? He was nah, great. No. He was great. I don't think this brawl, I think they end up teaming up because Christopher Reeve is not out to kill or fight anybody. He's going to talk to them like logically or Alan Chaffee's going to talk to them logically and try to reach them and all that. Like it was after a whole, whole movie's worth of events that he would try to blow up a room full of kids. Like it, it wasn't a, a rash reaction. He didn't just barge into battle. So I think he, him and, and Jack Burton would would come to terms, and he may even stand down. Uh, but I don't think it's just going to be a like a fight to the death. I don't think I don't think Alan Chaffee would do that uh, without really really good reasons. Jake, two men enter, one man leaves. Well, he leaves peace. One of, he, Alan Chaffee will fall on his own sword to let Jack Burton go. Okay. He, that 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 might be what happens. I I just I can't see Burton killing Chaffee, and I can't see Chaffee fighting Burton at all. So I I want him to team up. I want to watch that movie. <laughs> Fine, Jack Burton wins. Let's call it okay. And and an I anticlimactic conclusion, but a conclusion nonetheless. So moving on to the Carpenter Canon. Uh, so Jake, now it's time for us to place this in the canon of John Carpenter films that we have already discussed. Is this a Carpenter classic, which needs no explanation, a deep dive, which is, you know, it's solid, but um, it has its flaws, but not without merit, or just for Johnny's mommy, a movie that should only be viewed by Johnny's mommy. So this is, I think, for me... Not low enough to be a just for Johnny's mommy. Like, there's enough redeeming stuff that I enjoy watching. There's a Christopher Reeve performance that was good. There's some good ideas here, but it is the lowest of the deep. Like, you you got to dive pretty deep, not not below the surface, but uh, it's a deep deep dive for me. I, I can't give it just for Johnny's mommy. There's enough there that I like. I I enjoyed watching it. I just I I can't. I just can't give it a just for Johnny's mommy. That's where I'm at. What about you? I don't know if I'd put it at the bottom of my deep dives, to be honest. Like I like I was saying in our review, I think I would rewatch this before I'd rewatch Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, it's 
you know, it's flawed. And I think maybe the thing that's most disconcerting is it does feel a little bit like, uh, John Carpenter might be a little beaten down at this point working in the Hollywood system, um, with all of the, I mean, he's, he has gone through a lot of turmoil with, as far as, you know, films that a lot of up and down with films that do really well, films that don't do well, films that get discovered or get cult status afterwards. Films that should have did well. Yeah. Yeah. A whole lot of that. This is the first one that like kind of falls in that place of, I mean, the reason I understand the reason that I never hear anyone talk about it is because what is there to talk about? Not a whole lot. I mean, it's fine. It's not terrible. Um, but it's, it, it's not the gleaming glittering John Carpenter of the eighties. And it's definitely not in the mouth of madness. So it's a deep dive. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, the most fair thing we can do. I think that's the, the only thing that we can really give it. But when the cult of carpenters sit down to watch this deep dive, do you have a, a recommendation for a cult one that they should, they should crack open? Uh, I do. And I didn't think too hard on this one. So don't look for any like deep connections. There is, there is one pretty obvious connection though. Um, I am pairing village of the damned with golden one by Anthem brewing company in Oklahoma city, Oklahoma. Uh, this is a Belgian blonde ale and coming in at 7% ABV and 26% IBU. So, uh, pretty light sippable beer. Here's the thing. Blonde ales, Belgian blondes, not really my favorite style. Uh, as far as blonde ales go, this one's fine. Um, they tout that it's, you know, got a subtle hint of coriander and pineapple in the finish. And, um, you know, it's, it's light and has a fruity little thing going on. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's fine. It's good. It's sippable. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to, for, for a beer that's this light, honestly, I wouldn't want to have more than one in a row. Um, I would definitely shift to something that has a little more, maybe something that has a little more character to it. Um, like, uh, you know, whatever the beer equivalent of in the mouth of madness is. I don't remember at this point. Um, but it's, you know, it's okay. If, if someone hands me one, I'm going to, I'm going to sip it and I'm going to enjoy it and it'll be okay. Uh, but I know that there are better beers out there. So I think it does pair nicely with uh, village of the damned. I think you'll enjoy it. It won't be your favorite beer, but, uh, you won't be sorely disappointed that you, you sat down and spend an evening with it either. So that's golden ale by Anthem brewing company. Village of the Damned is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. Or, if you're still a fan of physical media, you can pick up the Scream Factory Special Edition Blu-ray. If you have something you want to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at Express at carpentercast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or, if email isn't your thing, we would still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss.
Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. It's time for some really red recommendations. What do you got? Uh, so I didn't bring a movie this time. Okay. Um, my recommendation is to watch the first five seasons of Cheers. <laughs> Just the first five seasons. Really, once Kirstie Alley shows up, you don't need to watch anymore. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's really how... So probably a year or two ago, I sat down and I watched every single episode start to finish. And I swear season one through five is probably the best sitcom of all time, save Seinfeld. Um, and once Kirstie Alley comes on, it's just fine. I know that that's not like, is a, it, is it her or is it just like the show in general? It's that it, uh, the Sam and Diane heat is gone. And that oh. was, that was necessary. That was a necessary part of the show. And while she does a fine job and she comes in and she's funny and, and the, the show still works, it's just not as good as it has been. And I'm hoping that this isn't the same inflection point in John Carpenter's career. Like, I, I know there's only a few movies left in front of us, um, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that we, we get something really good still still coming up. Um, but that being said, really, like, if, if you've just seen episodes of Cheers that you caught on TV when you were a kid or whatever, really go and watch it. The writing is great. It is it is truly a great show, and and plus you get to see apparently what people in that time period thought attractive women looked like when Sam Malone's hotties come in with with hair all the way high to heaven. Um, it's really interesting. Oh, so Roadhouse? Yeah, yeah. Why didn't I recommend that? If we're living in the '90s here, if that's where all the movies we're going to watch are going to be, I'm going to start recommending '90s stuff to go with it. If you can find a can of Surge, drink that as well. <laughs> Where can we watch Cheers or the first five seasons of Cheers? I should say. Um, I, I will vouch for the first five seasons are available on Netflix. I, I hear six more seasons are available as well, and then eleven seasons of Frasier. So I mean, go as deep into this as you want, but definitely the first five seasons are available to stream on Netflix. Okay, wonderful. Thanks. What What do you have, Chris? Do you have a more rational, sane recommendation? Uh, I don't know if it's more rational or sane, but it's the only thing I've been watching lately. Is it Singing in the Rain? It's not Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain, uh, while it's still in rotation, it has been knocked off as King of the Mountain for now um, by 101 Dalmatians. Uh, the, the Glenn Close live action one? No, the 1961 Disney animated film. Great, great. That's great. And uh, this is one that I loved as a kid, but I hadn't seen in a very long time. Um if uh, if you are unfamiliar with it, you may also know it by the name my one-and-a-half-year-old son calls it, Dogs. Which is also probably what they would call that movie now. Probably. <laughs> probably Dogs. so. But, um, so, yeah, I, I liked it as a kid. I had fun memories of it as a kid. Um, but watching it a lot lately, I really, really appreciate it this film for, for a number of reasons. One, like I think the story is really lean and kind of perfect. Um, like it's, it's that short, like I think it's under an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so it's, it's very quick. It doesn't try to build up too much story. It just drives along. Um, the animation is beautiful and gorgeous. The, like the backgrounds in this entire movie, which is something I would have never really paid attention to as a kid are just absolutely beautiful. I love the style. It feels like something um, out of like a modern comic book, 
Does this one take place in like the early 1900s London? No, it's got to be like maybe the 50s or 60s. I mean, it came out in 61. When it came out, was that like real life London? I mean, ish is like real life London. The dogs all talk to each other and stuff. And there's well, a you, Colonel you, Blimp reference. And um, Is there really? Yeah, kind of. There's there's this dog named Colonel who has a you know mustache and kind of no. he's uh he's he's a slight Colonel Blimp reference, I think. Um, but yeah, the dogs watch TV. It's a black and white TV. Like it's it's of the era ish. Yeah, for sure. I that's kind of shocked just because like I watched this as a kid, and to me, I thought it was like set in olden times. Jasper and Horace they drive a dilapidated car. Um, you know, there's a big climax of the the movie or um you know the second second and third act take place in hell house the old deville mansion which is like falling apart and in disrepair so uh there is a lot that kind of looks particularly in the the creepier parts of it i mean looks like it's more you know it's older than uh the the modern pieces of the film also i'll tell you what um a 25 plus year old memory of this film did in my head i was like yeah isn't dick van dyke a chimney sweep in that one no <laughs> he's not nope thank goodness we're not watching that one anymore oh y'all were y'all were mary poppins for a while we were mary poppins for a little while yeah um yeah. mary poppins is not a repeat viewing sort of movie really yeah it's fine the songs are a little repetitive mm-hmm. and uh they get stuck in your head it's not great. I mean, I guess like there's the Canine Crunchies uh, theme song, little jingle in this that gets stuck in my head, but I don't mind as much. Um, all that is to say that I highly recommend you watch 101 Dimensions, but right now it appears to be a little difficult to get your hands on as I think it's back in the vault. Um, I couldn't couldn't find it available to stream anywhere. Uh, you may be able to pick up still. There's a, a Blu-ray with a digital copy. You may be able to pick that up um, somewhere. If you, if you can, then I highly advise you do, especially if you have a young child who loves dogs. Do, doesn't Disney have like plans to have their own streaming service where you can watch any of their stuff at some point? They do at some point. I don't know when that's coming. Yeah, because they, they own Movies Now, right? Isn't that their product? Movies Anywhere. Movies Anywhere, that's right. And it's, I don't know if it's that they own it or if, like, it started out as Disney Movies Anywhere, mm -hmm. and then they got a bunch of other, I think it's like five other studios on board, and so now Disney Movies Anywhere expanded into Movies Anywhere. So it's Disney and I think Universal, and I don't, I don't remember what studios are all connected to it, but it's like, it's like the new Ultraviolet, essentially. Yeah, I... I there are like no studios who I will pay to watch just their content, but with all the stuff Disney owns, that is that is a thing that'll happen eventually. And when I am able to give them my money in order to watch my Disney movies, I will watch Hundred and One Dalmatians again. Then I will tell you that Robin Hood is better. Robin Hood, I've tried to get the kid into Robin Hood. He doesn't like it as much, <sighs> mostly because there's not a hundred and one dogs. But there's a fox. <sighs> I know. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Well, God dog it cooper Give one a day couple years one yeah. day all right well that's a wrap for another episode of the carpenter shop we'll be back next month with a review of john carpenter's vampires starring james woods you can catch it streaming right now on shutter and don't forget you can catch us in another fortnight on war starts at midnight where we will be discussing well we don't know tune in to find out 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to learn, too. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And you can check out our Mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMpod. And if you enjoy the show, you should tell your friends, you should tell your casual acquaintances, and you should tell that cute person at the gym who's always listening to podcasts. Or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant Henry Swanson a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Our theme song and featured music on this week's show are provided by Dragon in 3. Grab their brand new album, Double Lines, on CD, vinyl, cassette, or digital download right now at dragonin3.com. You will not be disappointed. Thanks for listening, folks. The eyes are the windows to the soul. Yeah, so the real question is, where does this rank among Kinks albums, Chris? Uh, certainly below Moosewell Hillbillies, mm-hmm. and certainly below Kind of Kinks. Um, it's below Misfits. It's below a lot. It's below... Where does it rank against Preservation Act 2? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, God. I Like, this is all just too inside baseball and not going to be interesting to anyone but Phil. <laughs>